Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we understand that this is a spiritual work, which means it's a work that only you can do. So we submit our hearts, Lord, to your word. We know that it is not only sufficient, but it's authoritative. It is the rule for life. It's, it's the way in which you have revealed yourself to us so that we can come to know you, but also so that we can walk in a way that is worthy of you. May our hearts be receptive and tender in these moments as we look into the scripture. May your Holy Spirit have his way in us to convict us, to encourage us, to help us in the ways that we need. May the God who is highest and greatest show his glory through us as we submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to Father's Day and we preach a Father's Day message, we run the risk of singling a bunch of people out. At least half of you in this room, we run the risk of singling you out. And then there are those who don't have kids in your home, and so you're kind of like, eh, I guess it doesn't really apply to me anymore. I don't have kids. And those of you who are single, is eh, it doesn't apply to me. I don't have kids. But I, I, I want us, as we come to the scripture this morning, to recognize that the words of God that we're going to be reading this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 6 are, are words that God gave to a community of faithful people, a community of those who were drawn in to a covenant relationship and and really those are just fancy terms for those who are drawn in to faith to God. So this morning, if you're one who believes in God for salvation, if you're one who has a relationship with God because of forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God because of faith in Jesus as the only way to salvation, then this message is for you, even though this morning I'm speaking directly to fathers. Hanging in my office are these two pictures. On the left-hand side is my, my grandpa, Alvin Grant Ross, and on the right-hand side is my great-grandpa, William Spurgeon Ross. And under, underneath, and you can't see because it's so far away, are their ordination certificates, and then on the left-hand side from my my grandpa, Alvin Ross, is his licensure for ministry. Um, my great-grandpa was ordained in March of 1920, over 100 years ago. That that's just blows my mind. And then my, my grandpa, Ross, he was ordained in November of 1942. Both of these men laid a foundation of faith for their families. Both of these men modeled what we're going to look at from the scripture in terms of a commitment to God in terms of ministry, a commitment to God in terms of worship, and a commitment to God in terms of devoting their life to serving him and setting a legacy of faith for their children. I am a beneficiary of two men, including my own parents, my mom, and my dad, who laid a foundation, a legacy of faith for myself and for my sisters. The challenge for us in 21st century culture is that we have a hard enough thinking 
about what's happening tomorrow or next week or next month, we don't even think or consider that laying a legacy, that the decisions that you make today will shape future generations. We just don't think about things in those terms. We don't understand or we can't grasp really the significance of how the decisions that we make, and remember last week we talked about slight deviations from the pattern that in the generation that you're in and the next generations end up being hugely off target, totally missing the destination because of compromises in deviations that we make. Like, it's okay, I'll just do this. It's all right, God will forgive me. It's not a big deal. But the implications of that for your children and your grandchildren, and on it goes, could be catastrophic for them. We saw that in the life of Elimelech, didn't we, last week? We saw how this man, Elimelech, who is living in Bethlehem with his family, his wife, Naomi, his two sons, Malon and Kilion, they're living there in Bethlehem, and, and things are starting to go a little bad. There, there's famine in the land, and so the prudent decision, the, the, the practical decision, there's food in Moab. Let's go to Moab. No big deal. We're, we'll just sojourn there for a few years. We'll come back when times are good. But what Elimelech failed to remember is that the decisions that he was making were gonna have huge implications for his children and huge implications for his children's children. Because it should have been obvious to Limelech that when God brings famine to a land, it's not just a physical issue that's at the heart of the famine, it always was meant to point to a spiritual issue. There was not only a physical famine that was taking place, it was meant to be a signpost to say, wait a second, there's something deeper going on here. There's a spiritual problem at stake, and that is the, that this is leading to the result of a physical famine. And God, as we saw last week, does not bring judgment into our lives to destroy us. God brings discipline and judgment in our life to bless us, to get our attention, to set us on course, to help to, to say, Wait a second, do, do you know what you're doing? Do you understand the consequences? Do you, do you know the course that you're setting? Do, do you recognize how this is going to affect your family? Do, do you realize how, how devastating this can be for you? Wake up, pay attention, understand that the physical famine of life is pointing to a spiritual reality. And so Elimelech should have, should have taken note and he should have remained in the land. He should have repented from the sins that he sinned and the sins of his people and, and, and devoted himself to trusting God in the midst of very hard things. But instead, Elimelech decided, you know what, Moab's not that far away. Matter of fact, I, I can see Moab from the heights of Bethlehem. It's not that far. But, but really, the truth is that, uh, that Moab may as well have been a million miles away because all of the promises that God had given to his people were, were going to be experienced as they remained in the land. The favor of God, the presence of God, the forgiveness of God, the, 
all of the, of the relational aspects of being in community with God were, were possible only as the people would remain in the land. And so that at the end of Judges, we, we see kind of the, the summary statement that was written over the, the, the nation of Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Judges 21, 25 says. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so by moving outside of the land of Israel, the promised land, Elimelech was subjecting himself and his family now to even graver consequences. And as you know, God would kill Elimelech. God would kill his, his two sons. And next week, we're going to begin to step into that story a little bit more. But, but learning from the lesson of Elimelech, as we kind of hold up a, a mirror to our own life and we, we recognize we want as moms and dads, as grandpas and grandpas, our grandmas and grandmas, we want to set a legacy of faith, a foundation of faith for our kids. How do we do that? How do we help the next generation learn to love God? And so this morning, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 where this is exactly in the heart of Moses as he's listening from the Lord and as he's establishing the foundation, the the entry point by which the people of Israel, this covenant people, this faith community are going to be able to enjoy the benefits of a relationship with God and establish a foundation of faith for their families. Deuteronomy chapter, chapter six, it's on page 151 if you're using the Pew Bible. Let me read the first three verses as we jump into our passage for today. It says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Now right out of the gate, as you hear these words, commandments, statutes, ordinances, rules, you start to hyperventilate, about the boundaries and conditions by which God is setting for a people. Um, often when we think about rules, we think about ways that, that people are pushing um, them, themselves away from us. They're, they're kind of setting these, these boundaries that are going to be beneficial for them, but, but not necessarily beneficial for us. It's kind of boxing us in, kind of taking away our freedom. There seems to be a distance in our understanding of the rules that are given to us. But I want us to understand right at the beginning of this passage that God's law is for our good. God's law is for our good. God intends good things for you. And he's done that for us. He's gifted his rules to us so that we can enjoy the life that he has designed us to enjoy. You ever, you ever play a game and get frustrated because 
The person that you were playing with constantly changed the rules. That especially happens if you're playing with kids. You're like, whoa, 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 time out. Wait a second. The rules were this, and now it's this? Yeah, of course, it's that. I said that all along. You see, when the rules are set ahead of time, and those rules are unchanging, and it helps us know how to essentially play the game and enjoy the design that God has given to us, then we come to understand that the rules are really good for us. And God has given his law for our good. The best and highest good that God has given to us through his law is that the law teaches us to know God. Through the law, we come to know who God is. Through the law, we come to discover who God is, that is the sovereign God who, who has made us, who has designed life, who, who has, has allowed us to, to, to live and to breathe and, to, and to, to carry out the functions day by day. God has given us his rules so that we can know him. And he is the highest and greatest uh, treasure we could ever know. God has made himself discoverable, knowable through his law. God gave us his statutes and rules, yes. But he gave it to us not to set boundaries that would restrict us, but would help us to understand the, the benefits and blessings of who he is in relationship with him. And in verse two, we find that, that all of these rules are given for one purpose, that you may fear the Lord. That's why God has given us rules. This, this word for fear is the word for reverence. It's the word for respect. It's the word for honor. And inherit, inherent in this word uh, in, 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 and uh, the privilege of, of fearing God and honoring God helps us to recognize that what God has at the, at the center of knowing his rules is knowing him and fearing him and having a relationship with him. Because you cannot fear and you cannot respect somebody you don't know. You can't fear or respect anybody you don't have a relationship with or to. Think about, think about a tyrant who is a, a world leader. Who, fill in the blank with whatever name you want. You don't have to fear that individual because you're not the one who's living in their country. But as soon as you would live there, now there's a sense of fear and respect because... Whether that relationship is an intimate one or a distant one, there is still the, 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 the engagement of that person's rules in your life. God, who is setting these rules, wants us to understand that those rules are meant to draw us into relationship. The relationship, in fact, that God had in mind is a relationship he spelled out at the very beginning of Exodus as the people were, were beginning to move out of or preparing at least to move out of Egypt, out of bondage. In Exodus chapter 4, 22 to 23, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is God's instruction to Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is the warning that God gave to Pharaoh at the very beginning before anything went down in terms of the plagues. 
God wanted Pharaoh to understand what the stakes were. Don't you touch my son. Don't you touch my firstborn. It will leave massive implications for you. It's because God is interested in a relationship. Not just in setting rules, not just in setting boundaries, but it is the rules in statutes that God has given to us that reflect the very character of God. These, these rules in statutes that we have aren't indiscriminate. They're not random. They're a reflection of the very character of God. And so when we look at the rules, we see the reflection of God. We come to understand who he is. We see his heart. We understand what holiness looks like as we look at the standards that God has set. And by understanding the standard, then we can align our hearts to enjoy the relationship that God has built for us to enjoy. You see, the law is meant for our good. And the greatest good is it teaches us how to know God. But, but notice too, in verses two and three, not only do we come to know who God is, which is the greatest good we could ever have, but, but, it, but the law also leads us to satisfaction in God, to satisfaction in God. Notice at the end of verse two, all the days of your life, uh, excuse me, I'll just read the whole verse, that you may fear the Lord your God, this is verse two, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and all his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God, excuse me, as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Do you see that built into obedience to the law are some benefits? What are some, some of those benefits that you see? There are at least three of them there. Notice that your days might be long. Notice that it might go well with you. Notice that you multiply greatly in this land that I've given to you, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And while on the surface it may seem that God is promising a good and happy life, really what God is promising is a life of being satisfied in God because he is the greatest reward. He is the greatest treasure. And as the people of Israel will come to enjoy this relationship of intimacy with God, regardless of the trouble that may come in the challenges of life, because of this relationship, it will carry them into enjoyment of God regardless of the challenges they face. Obedience to God's commands will lead to life and joy and fulfillment in God's favor. Why? Because the law leads you to God. The law leads you to the ultimate reward of God. The, 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 the law leads you into relationship with God and so that when you have much, you can rejoice and when you have little, you can rejoice because you have God. God desires for us to experience this for ourselves. But notice that this is something that God ex, uh, desires for us to pass on to the next generation. As we are enjoying God, as we're satisfied in God, then our sons and our sons' sons will benefit. Notice in verse two, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons. You're passing on 
a legacy of faith and delight and satisfaction in God. You come to enjoy God this way personally, and so you create an environment of enjoyment of the things that matter, the one thing that really matters, and that is satisfaction in God. There is a New Testament correlation that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. What does that sound like? Did it sound like what we just read from Deuteronomy? You better believe it because the same is true. As children are obeying their parents, they are first obeying the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord. And so as they delight as kids, teens, as you delight in submitting to and obeying your parents, you are showing that you're satisfied in God. You're showing that even if you don't get your way, that God is good and God is better. He's set your parents over you and that is good for you and you're trusting him. And fathers, this continuing command that we see emulated here again in verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that's what we're gonna see as we turn, the, turn to the next few verses in Deuteronomy chapter six. Now, it's not only is God's law for our good, but God's law is for our life. God's law is for our life. We see that in verses four and five. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God's law is for our life. It is meant to involve the totality of our being, every part of who we are. And when this is true, it demonstrates that we love God. It shows our love for God. This law is the governing standard for, for meaning in life. This is our clue that, that the command that we see in Deuteronomy chapter six is, is a, a universal command for us today. We see this command, and as you, we would even say this and read this out loud, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what do you think about? What did Jesus say about that command? It is the first and great commandment, right? So it's, it's meant to be universal. For anyone who is a person of the of the covenant community, anyone who is a person of faith who follows after God, this is meant to touch every part of who we are. Love the Lord your God with the totality of your life. Not just the spiritual part, not just the Sunday part, but the mental part, the emotional part, the physical part, the everyday kind of part of life. It's meant to affect the totality of your life. And, and, and who is supposed to fulfill this command? Who is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You. You love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, you can't do this for your kids. You, you can't love the Lord for your kids. You can want them to love the Lord. You can't love the Lord for your spouse. As much as you would like them to love the Lord more, 
And as, like, as much as you would like to nudge them and try to help them to love God more and to, and to see what you see in the scripture and, and try to bump them a little bit and, and, and nudge them to, to, to grow up in, in the Lord a little bit, the only person that can love the Lord more, the only person you can influence is you. Do you love the Lord with the totality of your life? Many years ago, when we were living in California, um, I'm a, I was an avid uh, football watcher. And um, because my, my, uh, my dad grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, what team do you suppose I'm rooting for? Aha, the Steelers, exactly. But when you're in California, uh, you only get to watch the game once in a while because it's, not, it's, a, it's a West Coast thing, not a... Not a mm, um, Midwestern thing, right? So, so the game, Pittsburgh games would only come on so often. And uh, my, my oldest daughter was also an avid football fan and decided that she was going to root for the other team. That wasn't going to happen in my house. <laughs> there are plenty of things to argue about. There are plenty of things to fight about. But we're not going to be fighting about the team we're rooting for, because what you love is what you commend in terms of love for your family. Is there, is there a clear, evident, radiant picture of love for God that is emanating from you so that it is contagious in that those who are around you, especially your spouse, especially your children, that they say, I know my daddy, or I know my mommy loves Jesus. There is nothing more important to her or to him than Jesus. And so I want to love Jesus too. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about building a legacy of faith that is commending the most important love that your children could ever have, and that is love for God. And they must see it in you first. It, it, it can't happen by, uh, by extension. It can't happen by happenstance. It happens as you are deliberate about loving God for yourself in creating a fertile environment of love for God in your home. Is the soil of your home rich in love for God? Are the nutrients of love for God evident in the soil of your home so that your kids in planting their, their roots down are gonna grow in the same way in love for God? They're gonna flourish because of that. It shows in our love for God. But it also shows in our love for our kids. Verses six to verse nine help to carry this through. It says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, as one who has experienced the love of God personally, the presence of God personally, the power of God in this relationship, this intimacy with God. You have experienced it personally. You love God yourself. And so what do you want for your kids? You want for your kids the same thing. And so you love your kids by loving your kids to God. 
You love your kids by pointing them to the only one that matters. If I were to, to take a poll among those who are here today, I, I am sure that what I would find is a group of parents and grandparents and friends who would say, we want to do whatever it takes to help our kids get the best education. Or we want to help our kids be the most successful. We want to prepare our kids for the best opportunities. We want to make sure that our kids have the best experiences. We want to make sure that we're the kind of parents that are, that are caring for the big things and the little things in our kids' life. We want our kids to make good decisions. We want our kids to go to the, to the best schools. We, we want our kids to, to be successful and to enjoy friendships. And so we'll spend a lot of time in, in helping to prepare our kids and to think about the future and to get ready for that so they can get the right kind of scholarships. They can, they can prepare themselves to get to the, the best kind of education, the best occupation. We spend a lot of time on those kinds of things but I wonder how little time we actually spend in helping our kids love God the way they should love God. How many times do we demonstrate through the inconsistency of our life in the way that we treat our hostess at a restaurant or the way that we grumble about our neighbors or the way we allow conflict to continue among people in the church, or the way that we make compromises on, on during the week that would say that God really isn't important, or when they wake up in the morning and the only thing that seems to matter to us is what's happening in the news cycle or what's happening on the stock exchange and not what's happening in a personal relationship with God. How does the totality of our life, the day by day, ebb and flow of life, show that we love God, we're consumed in the totality of our being with moving in the direction of wanting to love and to serve him? How many of our kids wake up in the morning and catch mommy and daddy reading their Bible? Or, or, or wake up in the middle of the night because they can't get to sleep and, and, they, and they find and discover mommy or daddy reading their Bible or praying to God on their own. That's what, that's what this passage has in mind. That is the waking up, the, the rising up and the going to bed and the walking in the way. It's not that we're having this constant Bible lesson, but your kids will see the testimony of the word of God showing up in your life wherever you go, who you relate to, how you make decisions, what you prioritize, the things you say, the grumblings that happen in the car when someone's not driving the way they're supposed to. How do your kids see a love for God through your life. How is it contagious? How are you inviting your family to love God the way they must love God? Finally, God's law is for our worship. God's law is for our worship. This is in verses 10 to 25. We don't have time to, to read through this entire section 
and, and, to, and to pick out the, the important details of what's happening here. But I want to just draw your attention to, to three truths. And, and as we work through this section, I want you to understand that our, our worship of God shows up in obedience. Our worship of God shows up in our submission to what God says. You worship God by showing that you trust God. And you trust God by showing a commitment to obey God, to follow his rules, to to work and operate within the design that he has set. Notice, I'm just going to draw a couple of comparisons here in in these verses so you can see how worship is at the is the focus of this section. Verse 13 it says, "It is the Lord God you shall fear." That's reverence, that's honor. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Drop down to verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. That's obedience. In verse 24, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. What helps us in moving in the direction of worship? What has God given to us to help Stable or steady our hearts so that we're drawn to worship him more. Well, in this final section, I think there are three key attributes of God that help to anchor our hearts into the foundation of trusting in God so that worship and faith and obedience comes more naturally. The first is that God delivers. God delivers. That's in verses 10 to 15. God delivers. Let me just read this. Verse 10 says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that I swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, the cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget. Forget what? lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How are we showing our children that God alone is the deliverer? How are we demonstrating to our kids that our security, our hope, our confidence is in God to fix the issues and not our own ingenuity? or that we trust that God is the one who is sovereign and who's over all and who can rescue and, and we're, not gonna, we're not gonna take it to the higher ups. We're not gonna climb this, this scale of, of those who are, who are in charge so that we can have our cause uh, uh, taken care of. But our confidence is in a God who saves, not in good argumentation not in forceful means of getting your own things through, that we trust God who delivers. And when we learn to trust God, when the bottom falls out of your life, you run to God, and you don't run to your own ingenuity. 
You, you run to God who saves. He, he, he then begins to, to draw you in into greater intimacy with him because as you're relying on him and you see that he is able to deliver you from every challenge that you face, your children see, ah, God delivers. I need to obey God. I need to be in relationship and fellowship with him because he alone can save me from the hardest circumstances I'm in. And so oftentimes, God doesn't save us from our situation by taking them away. So often, God saves us from the situation by helping to have us give us strength as we move through them. Are you trusting in a God who saves? Do your kids know that God delivers? We see in verses 16 to 19 that God is dependable. God is dependable. I wish we had time to, to really dig into this, but in verse 16 it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Well, what in the world happened at Massah? Well, this is when Israel went out of Egypt and on two separate occasions, they're wandering in this wilderness and they don't have any water. And so they grumble to Moses. Moses, we don't have any water. Moses goes, Lord, God answers, gives them water and their needs are met. That's chapter 15. They move out of this area. They move into the wilderness right in front of Mount Sinai. There's no more water there. They complain. It's Exodus chapter 16. They grumble again against Moses. God answers, gives them water, and their needs are met. Also in chapter 16, God gives them food through manna that comes every single day. Now, you'd think by this time they would know better. You think that by this time they would understand, oh, God is dependable. He brought us out of Egypt. He rescued us from Pharaoh. He brought these 10 plagues to, to rescue us out of this place. He, he, he brought us into the wilderness. He's taking care of our needs. But what do they do in Exodus chapter 17? This is in Massah. They now quarrel with Moses and they quarrel with him to, to put God to the test. Their grumbling hearts show they don't trust God. And before we, before we uh, are too hard on the, on the people of Israel, all we have to do is hold the mirror up and recognize how easy it is for us to have grumbling hearts. Every time we choose to complain, every time we grumble, we are making a statement. Whether you intend it or not, you are making a statement that God cannot be trusted. God is not dependable. God is not in charge. God does not love me. He's not caring for my needs. That's what we say when we complain every single time. Is God helping us, even when things are hard, to learn? God, you are dependable. I will not complain, even though it's hard. And finally, we find that God is strong in verses 20 to 25. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of this testimony and the statutes and the rules of the Lord? Then you shall say, verse 21, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. God is strong. God is able. And every time we choose to obey we are helping our children understand that God is able. God is strong. We can trust him. Our obedience commemorates the power of God. 
The power that is for our good, the power that is limitless, the power that is unstoppable, the power to provide for our needs, we just have to wait for his timing and trust that he is dependable and able. The power of God that is a signpost for our kids. Dad, why are you trusting God when things are so hard? Mom, why are you trusting God when life seems to be so out of control? Well, let me tell you, son. Let me tell you, daughter. I am trusting God because I believe that God is powerful. He's limitless. He's unstoppable. And you can trust him. Lord, I pray that you would help us to establish a legacy of faith for our kids. Help us through our love for you and love for your commands to build a foundation for our kids to love God and to see him. To see him through us, to see him for themselves, and to enjoy and experience the fellowship that comes in following after you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.